0: It's May 23rd, 1618, and Philip Fabricius is falling 70 feet through the air to his almost certain death. He's falling three stories out of a window of Prague Castle, along with his bosses, the fanatical Catholic Lord Regents Count William Slavata and Count Jaroslav Martinitz. He's screaming, Jesus, Maria, help! They are falling out of this window to their almost certain deaths because they've been pushed out as a form of impromptu execution by some very very angry Czech Protestant lords they've been pushed by the protestants because they had come with an order from Ferdinand II Habsburg the current king of Bohemia and presumptive future holy roman emperor demanding the protestants cease construction of their chapels on his catholic royal land in that moment the three men most likely thought they would die but most likely could not imagine the almost 10 million others across the European continent who are about to die due to their misfortune. This is the defenestration of Prague. That's a big honk. The infamous, dramatic, ridiculous moment that ignites the Thirty Years' War. This seemingly minor incident in the relative backwater of Bohemia will begin unraveling the tenuous construction of pieces, truces, and settlements across Europe, building from a small dispute over Protestant privileges to a conflagration involving powers from Rome to Stockholm, Budapest to Madrid. This explosion of violence will be the result not just of unhealed religious divisions, but of the unresolved dynastic tensions and ambitions grinding together in the gears of these modernizing states
1: thanks to a prolonged period of cold rainy weather the bohemian grain harvests of both 1617 and 1618 failed wouldn't you know it hmm. wonder why that might happen it was in this context that a crisis of royal legitimacy gripped bohemia the only kingdom within the holy roman empire uh, in what is now the czech republic in central europe The recently crowned King Ferdinand had made assurances to the Protestant nobles and their appointed representatives, the Defensors, (laughs) uh, when his cousin, the childless Holy Roman Emperor, had negotiated to have the Bohemians recognize Ferdinand as his successor. But Ferdinand was one of the most inflexible counter-Reformation Catholics in the Habsburg family and quickly showed his commitment to rolling back Protestant gains in his new domain, just as his grandfather and namesake Ferdinand I had done in Austria a generation prior. Crops were dying in the fields, food costs were rising, and social dislocation rising with them. So the most ambitious and or financially precarious of the high nobles or estates of Bohemia had every reason to seize this religious conflict as the justification for a move against Ferdinand. That would allow them to install a king of their choosing and reap the spoils of kingmakers. The Defensors built their own parallel government, led by the figure with the most Star Wars-ass name in the entire Thirty Years' War, Count Thurn. Count Thurn, definitely a uh, Sith Lord. Absolutely. These were the men who burst into the castle chambers and, self-consciously repeating the act of their Hussite forebearers, who had thrown seven Catholic city councilors out of City Hall window in 1418, had their own defenestration of Prague. This cemented chucking someone out of a high window as the preferred method of execution in Bohemia.
0: But Philip Fabricius did not die that day, yeah. nor did Martinitz or Slavata. According to the Catholics, they were spared as the Blessed Mary heard their pleas, and through her heavenly grace, their fall was slowed. For Protestants, it was because through dumb luck, they landed in a pile of shit below the window. Later... Some observers speculated that their heavy coats worn by the de had acted as parachutes. But I don't know. You be the judge. Regardless, Slavata was severely injured but allowed to recover, while Martinitz and Fabricius hightailed it back to Vienna to inform the Habsburg emperor the Bohemians were in revolt. The Bohemians, under Count Thurn, quickly implemented their Protestant government and decided it was their turn to name a new king of Bohemia. The question was what prince of the empire would be reckless enough to defy the emperor and accept the crown the fifth of the Palatinate, was born in August 1596. He was the grandson of William of Orange, and in 1610, he succeeded his father to become the elector of the Palatinate. As an elector, he became one of the seven princes of the Holy Roman Empire with votes to elect the emperor himself, along with the crown of Bohemia, that's where Prague is, Saxony, that's kind of east-central Germany around Leipzig and Dresden, and Brandenburg, that's the northeast, kind of the area around Berlin that will eventually become Prussia, along with the archbishoprics of Cologne, Trier, and Mainz. So picture Electoral Palatinate as kind of a like a blob of territory smeared randomly across west-central Germany, with its capital in Heidelberg, right between modern Frankfurt and Stuttgart. So... Okay, Matt, how the hell would you describe the Palatinate? It's a region, it's a, a princedom. what is the, fuck this whole polity. So the Palatinate is sort of the mirror image of
1: Saxony. You've got secular electorates divided into upper and lower halves. And Saxony in the east is in the east of the empire, bordering the Polish-Lithuanian commonwealth. The Palatinate is in the center left around the Rhine River, northeast of Bavaria, uh, which is the most powerful and largest Catholic state of the empire. Uh, the, certainly the largest uh, secular non-ecclesiastical right. uh, uh, power within the emperor, but not an elector yet. The Palatinate was set apart from the other major imperial princedoms culturally. They preferred the French language at court and white wine at the tables of the aristocrats uh, rather than as in the East in Germany where they preferred their German and their beer. The Germans are noted, the Saxons in particular, for their uh, absolutely grotesque consumption of beer. Yes. Uh, the french uh, diplomats
0: marveled at how horrifying uh, the drunk they were there's a saying that a um, a french saying that a horse stops drinking when it's full that's when a german starts exactly and yeah they would be horrified because the aristocrats would just
1: get into these dank rooms and stuff themselves with like pork and drink huge flagons of beer and just get their ears blown out by brass bands
0: Yes, there were no, there was no courtly lute singing and poetry no reading. In, in in no Just getting shit
1: faced and, and, and gassy <laughs> while brass band blares. Yeah. They
0: really do love that umbo music. Yeah,
1: uh, uh, one of the key figures of this whole Thirty Years' War, uh, John George of Saxony, the Elector of Saxony, was
0: known as Beer George. And remember, his pr- immediate predecessor was John Sausage. Yep john sausage and beer george these were the party animals of of europe and they always have been another german noble of uh, of this time tried to found a temperance society but the first man he appointed to lead the temperance society himself died of drinking yeah
1: that's what germany is but the palatinate closer to france is a much more courtly refined uh aristocratic culture and yes is on the wine track rather than the The beer beer track track, yes uh and because of this higher degree of Urban sophistication comes with it a more sophisticated uh, and French infused Reformation, which means that in 1559, the elector of the Palatinate, Frederick III, converts to Calvinism. He uh, has read both, of course, and from his lordly position, he holds a disputation between Lutheran and Calvin and theologians, and he is persuaded by the Calvinists because that's what the Calvinists always had was the args they had enough time to sit there and make them
0: up. It is funny that this guy might be um, the one that we have the, the closest evidence that he literally sat there and listened to both the args and was like, no, this one makes more sense. But again, it's funny how it aligns exactly, it aligns exactly with, his material with, his, interest, with his material interest, and the economic and uh, Rhode social nature. is major. much more
1: connected economically to the watershed of the low countries in France than it is to the rest of Germany, <laughs> of course. But... This guy also did have a real-life disputation (laughs) and decide that Calvinism was for him. And so now it is also religiously distinct from the rest of either Catholic or Lutheran, as in covered by the Augsburg settlement, Germany. Uh, It's a significant challenge to the tenuous religious peace that had been established after the Schmokaldic Wars because the Augsburg Agreement had recognized Lutheranism, but not Calvinism. The Palatine electors were technically outside the legal framework of the empire that had proved largely capable of channeling conflict between Lutheran and Catholic princes through the institutions of the imperial courts, administrative circles, and legislative diets. Uh, They were terminally alienated from the imperial state, and the ruling houses of the electorate would work hard to move
0: themselves in a position to challenge its power over them. So then it's also important to remember that it was the crown of Bohemia that held the electoral vote. It's a position, not a person. And now, the crown was vacant, and it was an elected position, and the Protestant princes were in control of Bohemia, and the electors of Saxony, Brandenburg, and Palatinate were also Protestant. So suddenly, here was a window, a possibility of engineering a Protestant majority of electors against the domination of the Catholic Habsburgs. And then here's Frederick V, a boy of 22 in 1618. By all accounts, a genteel, polite, well educated young Calvinist prince, a, quote, gracious host and good companion, high spirited and easily pleased, but also prone to bouts of depression and with a knack for indecisiveness. And crucially, raised from youth by his mother and from his education in the court of his uncle, the Calvinist Duke of Bouillon in France to turn to his elders for advice, and to unquestioningly accept the purposes laid out for him by his trusted advisors. And here in Heidelberg, his advisor was... Christian I, the prince of Anhalt-Bernberg.
1: Now, Christian of Anhalt, as he's usually known, was the prince of one of those tiny fractional principalities that cluster around the edges of the bigger principalities, the ones that actually have political influence in the empire. Uh, But there are still tons of these small... Uh,
0: principalities
1: ruled over by these minor nobles. i cr- like
0: 2,000 of them.
1: Yeah. And the thing is, there's so many of them, and they're so relatively uh, small that the only way a vastly ambitious, religiously fervent minor prince like Christian could hope to wield greater power commensurate with his energies was to become an advisor to a bigger prince. Like a Remora. And exactly. And that prince was Frederick's father, Frederick IV, aka Frederick the Righteous. Now, Christian ingratiated himself to Mr. Righteous by leading a military expedition into France to support Henry IV during the French Wars of Religion, and in 1595, he was appointed governor of the Upper Palatinate. A year later, Frederick V was born. Having built a trusting relationship with the father, Christian was able to build an even deeper trust in the son, and by the time the father died in 1610, Christian was fully secure as the court favorite. Now, favorites are crucial to the function of the early modern state, the chief advisor and executor of the sovereign's will and judgment. By this point, the complexity of royal finance, diplomatic, and military decision-making was enough to overwhelm even the most diligent monarch, of which there were few. Now, Philip II of Spain's stern fixation on Catholic duty compelled him to attempt to manage the affairs of state himself, and he spent his entire reign reading and dictating letters and even then barely kept his head above water. Most kings and princes raised in wombs of privilege didn't want to spend their time going blind in front of a candle, so they left the executive function of state to a favorite noble to act as an unelected prime minister. Favorites played a hugely influential role in the Thirty Years' War, and we'll meet a number of them, but none would be as influential as Christian, the man who fired the starting gun of the whole bloody affair. Now, after the death of John Calvin, the palatine capital of Heidelberg became the new capital of reformed Europe. The ruling dynasty subsidized the creation of a Calvinist university curriculum that brought aspiring Reformed theologians from across Europe to study and publish and debate. It was an atmosphere fraught with religious fervor and apocalyptic expectation. God's will was unfolding towards a final confrontation with Antichrist, understood throughout the Protestant world to be synonymous with the Pope. And Christian of Anhalt saw his young protégé Frederick V as the
0: instrument of ultimate victory. Freddie V found himself in a bit of a dynastic rivalry between the two branches of his family, the Wittelsbachs. Frederick of the Smyrne Cadet branch now controlled the Palatinate as a Calvinist. His cousin was Maximilian I Wittelsbach, and the Duke of Bavaria and an arch-Catholic going as far as signing a vow of personal dedication to the Virgin Mary in his own blood. Mm-hmm. The Duke of Bavaria was critically not an elector of the empire, but one of the largest and most powerful non-electoral princes. And in their dueling capacities, both the Wittelbachs had become the hubs for their respective religious alliances. This is very similar to the Saxon situation. Yes. So after the death of his father, Frederick inherited his position as the head of the Protestant Union. Uh, The union was a defensive alliance organized by Frederick's father and containing most of the Protestant princes and free cities of Germany. The refusal of John George of Saxony an Arch-Lutheran who disliked Calvinists more than he hated Catholics, was a serious handicap the Union would struggle with throughout its existence. And we'll hear much more about John George, Peter George, later. Maximilian, unlike his cousin, was a dedicated and capable administrator. Quote, I believe we princes only gain respect both from spiritual and secular powers according to reasons of state, he wrote in a letter early during his rule. And that, quote, Only those who have a lot of land or a lot of money get the respect. First you get the land, then the money, money, then then you get get the the respect. respect. Committed to his dual role as both a preeminent Catholic prince of the empire and head of the Wittelsbach dynasty, Maximilian ensures that his princeton's position astride the Rhine trading routes was put to the development of state capacity. Bavaria was one of the most well-governed states in the empire, with an effective tax system that saw Maximilian double his revenues in the first 20 years of his rule. This money went to the creation of a network of advanced fortifications, and to the funding of military capabilities as Maximilian's main vehicle for dynastic and confessional aggrandizement, the Catholic League. Organized basically in response to the Protestant Union, this was a similar mutual defense organization, this time by the Catholic princes to defend the rights and privileges of Catholics. Though organized with the blessing of the Pope and theoretical support of both the Spanish and Austrian Habsburgs, their actual level of support was never fully assured. Uh, It should be noted that the emperor was not
1: really happy about either of these things happening. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Catholic League and the Protestant Union were both made in the teeth of a uh, resistant emperor who was essentially powerless to stop them, mm-hmm. especially given the fact that he was trying to get them on board to pay for the war with the Turks in Hungary right. that was ongoing and which needed constant funding and which really blunted the emperor's ability to impose anything on either the, Ca- either the Protestants or the Catholics.
0: More of these uh, Habsburg rulers whose main motivation is, come on, guys, cut it out. Exactly. And
1: so both of these things are undermining the central authority of the emperor. So the rise of these confessional diplomatic and military alliances is caused by this crisis of imperial legitimacy. They're filling that vacuum. The Holy Roman emperors who'd followed Charles V had tried to direct religious conflict through the deliberative structures of the empire while also emphasizing the need for a common front against the Ottomans. Come on, the, the Come Turk, on man. Knocking, they're they're knocking still there. They, the Turks still lust Hey, dude, the Turk has not stopped lusting for Vienna, you know. <laughs> the princes only occasionally agreed to fund the Habsburg-Ottoman wars, but they largely agreed to a peaceful grievance process, even though in practice that usually meant kicking the can down the road and hoping the problems would resolve
0: themselves. Always a good strategy.
1: But general faith in the impartiality of the emperor was eroded By the Jesuit-led counter-reformation occurring in Habsburg lands and the imperial policy of filling lucrative bureaucratic posts with Catholics, leaving Protestant nobles unable to provide security for their unlanded younger children. And that is really the end goal of all of these people is to ensure the dynasty. Right. Uh, And that is as many kids, keep as many of your kids on the board as possible. Catholic and Protestant powers also came to the point of violence in a series of succession crises that included a military mobilization when the city council of Strasbourg tried to install a Protestant bishop. In this heated context, the Protestant princes lost their confidence that the emperor who was supposed to stand as the ultimate impartial arbiter of disputes within the empire could no longer be trusted to rule impartially. He was a Catholic Habsburg, right? The Jesuits, a Catholic religious order that the Pope had charged with the duty of rolling back the reformation were recatholicizing Habsburg ancestral lands with a deft mix of persuasion and coercion. When the ambitious and fervent Palatine Wittelsbach conceived of a separate defensive pact to protect Protestant interests, Many princes and city councils jumped at the chance. The Catholic League was formed in response as a check on independent Protestant power, but like the Union, it was also a vehicle for Wittelsbach dynastic ambitions. Bavarian, in this case. With the League, Maximilian sought the ability to build his own military capability, separate from the Habsburg imperial forces, and pursue his own foreign policy. The center of power in the empire was failing to hold.
0: So we've got the two houses Wittelsbach with these competing religious defense organizations built around them. Then also, we must catch up with the Habsburgs. If you remember Charles V had split his empire between his son Philip II of Spain and his brother Ferdinand I of Austria, we spent the last episode following the fates of the Spanish branch of the family. So now let's catch up with the Austrian side. Ferdinand I and his son Maximilian II Habsburg had been largely competent leaders, both taking the crown of Bohemia but maintaining religious peace in the region and spending a lot of their time dealing, of course, with the Ottoman threat to the east because this was, of course, the high point of the Turks' lust for Vienna. We're they were never going to lust for Vienna more than that. They got so close. They were just hungry for it. The trouble really starts with Maximilian's son Rudolf II. Rudolf was a real character, uh, moving the Habsburg court from Vienna to Prague, then largely withdrawing from religious controversies of the day. In fact, Rudolph's main thing was art, the occult, and his legendary Cabinet of Curiosities, his collection of artifacts, natural oddities, and fantastic trinkets he spent hours upon hours with. My man was literally pondering his orb. All day. Crucially, in 1609, an aging Rudolf issues the Letter of Majesty, a document granting religious freedom and certain privileges to Protestants in Bohemia. This is the status quo the defenestrators were living under in 1618. Rudolf begins a period of imperial decline as he dies childless, passing the imperial crown and bohemian throne onto his brother Matthias. Matthias, once wrangling power from Rudolf, also proved ineffectual, though less orb-pondering than his brother, and did little to broker increasing tensions within his realm. By the time of the defenestration, he too was old, doddering, and without an heir. And within a year of the incident, he would be succeeded by his cousin Ferdinand II. So that's the straight chronology of the Habsburgs in Austria. But Matt, what's going on with the actual levers of power here in the Austrian Habsburg line? So Rudolf II was, by all accounts, a strange duck. Uh, he
1: had deeply negative personal feelings for all of his siblings. <laughs> he refused to marry or father children. He did just up and moved his court to Prague, stopped governing, and started pondering. Now, some of this is explained by Rudo's fragile personality, but his decision to engage came at a time when governing the Holy Roman Empire was becoming an impossible task. The emergence of confessional camps within the empire made achieving consensus in the parliament the Diet, increasingly mm-hmm. tedious. At best, the courts could forestall conflict, never resolve it. Armies were raised to hash out the sort of succession questions that used to be the empire's raise on debt, all while the Turkish menace in Hungary and the Mediterranean loomed unabated. And to make matters worse, his brother Matthias had never reconciled himself to his disinheritance after their father broke with German precedent and left his undivided estate to Rudolf alone. Unable to impose his will on a fractious polity, rudolph retreated into fantasy according to one of his brothers his majesty is interested only in wizards alchemists cabalists and the like sparing no expense to find all kinds of treasures learn secrets and use scandalous ways of harming his enemies he also has a whole library of magic books he strives all the time to eliminate god completely so he may in future serve a different master Whatever supernatural aid Rudolf sought was unable to prevent Matthias from making enough promises to enough powerful people within the empire to force his brother into abdicating power to him. But Matthias soon found out that not all of the Austrian Habsburg struggles
0: could be reduced to Rudolf's eccentricities. So one thing we can focus on from this period of the Habsburgs is the rising importance of Bohemia. Uh, the Habsburgs were attempting to make the elected crown of Bohemia as much a hereditary right as the elected crown of the Holy Roman Emperor was becoming. A particular note about Bohemia was, not only was it the one kingdom contained within the empire, not only was that crown elected, but Bohemia's Protestant tradition was deeper than the rest of Germany's. As we went over in episode one, Bohemia was the location of the Hussite heresy or rebellion or whatever you want to call it, the pre-Lutheran Reformation that had won the Bohemians some freedoms of religious practice way back in the 1430s, almost 200 years earlier. The Bohemian Ultraquist Church, as it was known, along with the encroaching Lutheranism, comprised a large portion of the Bohemian population and, crucially, its lower nobility and city burger class. Now, ultraquism,
1: meaning each of two, as in able to receive both that bread and that wine of communion, with we the fought the bread for Damn it was sort of a Central European Anglicanism without the fervent confrontationalism of the sects that emerged out of the Reformation because that strain had been crushed the Taborites that we talked about earlier. But among the ultraquist nobility, there was a faction that took inspiration from the anti-Catholic movement surrounding Bohemia to press for a more expansive settlement with their king. Matthias made a lot of promises to secure Bohemian support For his challenge to Rudolf, but Matthias was also aging and childless, and the estates worried about what would come after him.
0: And so, into this fray is the rising star of Ferdinand II Habsburg. Ferdinand was educated by the Jesuits, who were basically the Catholic marines of this era, fiercely focused spiritual warriors dedicated not just to stopping the spread of the Protestant mind virus, but outright eradication of its strain.
1: Yeah. They were JSOC. Yeah. They were, they were the operators.
0: Yes. They, Big they beards. were the, the CIA within the, uh, yeah. within the, 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 Roman church. Yeah. Uh, unlike the previous two Habsburg emperors, Ferdinand was relatively young. He was 40 and sixteen eighteen. virile. He would go on to have seven children, ensuring the continuation of the Habsburg line and at least somewhat capable. Before becoming emperor, he had reached a settlement with the Protestant Hungarians for religious toleration in exchange for being elected their king, a peace Matthias had failed in achieving. It's possible Ferdinand would have been down to keep a similar peace with the Bohemians had they not all decided to go sicko mode with the defenestration. But Matthias arranged for Ferdinand to be voted king of Bohemia in 1617. With Ferdinand's assurance, he would respect the letter of majesty and the Protestant religious freedoms. And more politicking would get Ferdinand elected the Holy Roman Emperor on Matthias's death in 1619 by securing the support of the Protestant but cautious John George of Saxony. His own vote as the King of Bohemia plus the three archbishops. But all of this is happening right around the time of the defenestration, so the security of these positions was immediately in jeopardy. And the timing of this is a little complicated. It's, yeah, it's like, like the it's
1: defenestration like happens before... After Ferdinand has been crowned king of Bohemia, but before, before he's become he's the been emperor. crowned uh, Holy Roman
0: Emperor, and the actual crowning of the emperor is also confusing because so he has his own vote as king, the vote of John George plus the three Catholic archbishops, but he ends up getting a unanimous vote anyway because at a certain point it's like well he's going to win and you don't right. want to and be seen votes as him. voting against him. Yes. So even after what's going to happen next, the Palatinate yes votes for him as well. It's, right, and so I, and and uh, I believe at this point. Uh, like they have not
1: even officially uh, kicked Ferdinand off the throne of uh, Hungary yet. Yes. So it's all, there's this period where things are very fluid. Yes. Then it solidifies into a outright rejection by Hungary of uh, one line and an invitation to another. Right. So in the Protestant legend that would spring up during the war, the Bohemian defensors threw the king's representatives out the window because they were threatening religious liberty. Right. And that's certainly true. It was a demand to cease the construction of Protestant chapels on royal land that started the whole thing, but the danger of re-Catholicization wasn't just to souls, it was to the power and position of the Bohemian estates. Re-Catholicization meant Jesuits tempting the common people with parades and plays, but it also meant government positions in the bureaucracy going to Catholic nobles whose loyalty was to Rome and Vienna. With great harvests drowning in the fields military nobles being replaced by professional mercenary captains and church offices abolished, government posts were the only guarantors of familial advancement. Mm -hmm. Ferdinand's coronation put the long-term position of the bohemian Protestant nobility at risk. Count Thurn, the Star Wars-ass named noble who led the revolt, had lost a key post to Martinitz in the royal bureaucracy who he would later have thrown out of a window
0: hmm, it's funny how those religious those religious prerogatives in uh getting a good job it is wild uh, keep on you know lining up it's wild but that yeah if that happened in 1617
1: thurn loses a position to martinitz and that starts him down the road to organizing this revolt in defense of his prerogatives and, right. and his family's line and thanks to the concessions they had wrangled from rudolph and matthias during those guys struggle for power The estates had the institutional capacity to coordinate a response rather than allow their new king to dictate terms. The deteriorating agricultural conditions, the increasingly unstable monetary economy, and the attendant religious fanaticism provided the necessary motivation for the Bohemians to make a bold and dangerous play. The social technologies unleashed by print, the Reformation, and urbanization gave them the tools to
0: do so and confidence that they could actually win. So... As soon as Ferdinand II steps into his roles as the king of Bohemia and the Holy Roman Emperor, everything starts to fall apart. And indeed, in August 1619, the Bohemian Diet, pushed into action by the bold public defiance of the defenestration, deposes Ferdinand as king. Mm -hmm. The Bohemian Diet is then tasked with the question of who should rule them. Whoever they offered the crown to would be the swing vote among the seven electors of the empire. The other six were divided between three Protestant princes and three Catholic bishops. Anyone who accepted would immediately be inviting a military response from an emperor who couldn't let such a challenge go by while maintaining his authority. This meant that the field of potential candidates was extremely narrow. John George, the powerful Saxon elector, let it be known that he would not accept the crown. Which takes us back to Heidelberg. As Matt mentioned above, Heidelberg had become the center of Calvinist thought in Europe, just like Luther's Wittenberg, a century earlier, had developed into an insane hothouse of ideology, all of it surrounding the young elector, Frederick V.
1: Now, as the only Calvinist elector, Frederick was surrounded by courtiers, theologians, and diplomats from the leading edge of the most confrontation-minded of the Protestant sects of Europe— German Lutherans by this point had settled into a wary but stable accommodation with the emperor after their sect was legalized at Augsburg and focused their energies on building the church on their lands, particularly in a massive program of state-funded school construction Mm -hmm. to spread literacy and the ability to appreciate scripture to the peasantry. But political Calvinism had just been born in blood through massacre and persecution in France and the Low Countries, and the sword of annihilation still hung over their nascent gains – What was needed, these aspiring elect agreed, was a champion, a leader who could embody the role of Christ in the earthly battle against Antichrist. Henry IV famously decided that Paris was worth a mass. Elizabeth's successor, James I of England, the sixth of Scotland, resisted further reforming his church or becoming the leader of a Protestant military bloc. The Dutch were reckoning with the end of the 12-year truce and a resumption of war with Spain. Frederick V, the of the Holy Roman Empire stood alone as a potential
0: Calvinist knight errant. So Freddie starts getting the idea that he might be the Calvinist Messiah and begins to take his own cosmic purpose very seriously at court masquerades. He dresses as Arminius, a hero of German legend who overthrew the Romans and as the mythological Jason who stole the golden fleece, which was now a symbol of the Habsburgs Frederick, was on a mission from God, because beyond just embracing the already radical edges of the Reformation through Calvinism, thanks to Christian Anhalt, Frederick was hooked up to some even heavier stuff. So not all the
1: Calvinists who gravitated to Heidelberg University and the electors court did so out of a devotion to predestination or hatred of church pews. That proto-enlightenment occult intellectuals of Europe, the people who viewed the Bible not as the plain word of God, but as a coded transmission to be deciphered for the revelation of profound natural truths, found Calvinist states amenable for a different reason. Calvinism rejected state authority over the church. In 1600, the Italian philosopher and occultist Giordano Bruno, who inspired a generation of free thinkers, was burned at the stake for heresy. Now, that was only possible because of the Catholic Church's ability to wield state power to enforce a religious and scientific orthodoxy. Now, members of Calvinist churches were eagle-eyed in looking for apostasy among their membership, but that meant they didn't always notice more esoteric challenges to Christian metaphysics. If mankind was to overcome the mental straitjackets imposed by the Catholic Church that held back human spiritual and intellectual progress, it would do so under a flag of spiritual and intellectual freedom, because only through the free flow of ideas could man finally be able to bring about a true revelation. Calvinist states, with their separation of church and state, were the only places in Europe such thinkers felt like they could make progress on this great intellectual work. In 1614, a mysterious pamphlet appeared in bookstalls in the state of Cashel, north of the Palatinate. It was titled Fama Fraternitatis, or A Discovery of the Fraternity of the Most Noble Order of the Rosy Cross. There was no named author. Manuscript versions had been circulating among esoteric thinkers for years, but this was the first public announcement of the so-called Rosicrucian Brotherhood. The document purported to be the manifesto of a secret group of learned godly men who were working towards the final perfection of the human race and the creation of heaven on earth. Their society was to be the Jedi to the Catholic Sith. Whereas the Jesuits sought to shroud Europe in the mists of superstition, the Rosicrucians aimed to shine a torch of enlightenment that would raise every person to their most exalted spiritual state. They lived secluded in a hidden city of light, where they devoted themselves to the free and open investigation of all scientific and spiritual ideas. Their immense learning meant they were able to cure all illnesses. They lived, quote, free from all disease and pain, but still ventured out to live in disguise among the common people, healing the sick and preparing the ground for their eventual unveiling. When that day came, quote, we do promise more gold than both the Indies bring to the king of Spain, for Europe is with a child and will bring forth a strong child who shall stand in need of a great godfather's gift. The pamphlet also described sigils charged with occult meaning that could be understood only by the adept. The Fama was written in German as an announcement to the urban mass audience who had snatched up Luther's work. A year later, another pamphlet was published, this in Latin for a more learned, select audience. Within it were keys to unlocking the deeper symbolic truths that had been hidden in the first pamphlet. This new one was called Confessio Fraternitatis, or the Confession of the Laudable Fraternity of the Most Honorable Order of the Rosy Cross, written by all the learned of Europe. Wow, you really got all the learned for your pamphlet? All the damn learned of Europe wrote this motherfucker. Ah
0: damn, that's, that's a lot. It's
1: like a fucking Wu-Tang album. <laughs> we got everybody on this piece. The volume got more specific in its prophecy of a new general reformation of all divine and human things. In its a champion, that strong child written of in the fama, nurtured by the great godfather's gift of Rosicrucian teachings, would, with the cry of a lion, smash papal tyranny in Germany. All of the, quote, servitude, falsehood, lies, and darkness, which by little and little crept into all arts, works, and governments of men, would be banished, and the moment come when the world shall shake out of her heavy and drowsy sleep, and with an open heart, bare head and bare foot, shall merrily and joyfully meet the new arising sun. Patriots, these pamphlets assured, were in control. (laughs) Yes. the Work ended by warning all dishonest men from attempting to contact the brothers who vowed to stay in hiding for a hundred years, but left the door tantalizingly open for the pure of heart to seek out these secret teachers and join their ranks to help them bring about the illumination of mankind.
0: Could you say where they went one, they went they all went motherfucking all. Hmm. Rosicrucianism took its place among many esoteric and mystical philosophies gaining popularity in the day. Uh, hermeticism, A philosophical system based on the writings supposedly from Hermes Trismegistus, uh, the thrice-blessed... The thrice-blessed Hermes! A mashup of uh, the Greek Hermes and the Egyptian god Thoth had regained prominence in the Renaissance. Emphasizing the unity of all and the existence of a single, true theology discoverable through esoteric and scientific study, Hermeticism inflected the popularity of alchemy. And at this point, many courts employed alchemists, and kings like Philip II engaged in it himself. And also astrology, uh, no less than the great astronomer Johannes Kepler, court mathematician to the Austrian Habsburgs at the time, would complain of having to support himself ministering to astronomy's "quote silly little daughter" of astrology. Rudolf II obsessed over alchemy and employed figures like John Dee, the mathematician and occultist, who advised Queen Elizabeth I in his pursuits of the philosopher's stone. As the currency crisis grew. The tantalizing promise of alchemists to pull precious species out of common metals became an intense state pursuit across the corpse of Europe. It was the DARPA, or skunk works, of its day. And, interestingly enough, while the pursuit was for the fantastical idea of turning lead into gold or whatever, these people did actually come up with many new innovations around these times. That's absolutely... uh, You cannot... Take the alchemical pursuit away from the
1: greater of scientific revolutions of the time uh, that brought about things like the new mining techniques. Exactly. That increase the ability to uh, power a uh, industrial economy and uh, yeah pull more species from the ground, circulate the economy and increase economic
0: activity. And of course, this is a little later, but we got to bring up this guy. Uh, You would get real scientific discoveries from these fantastic pursuits like Henning Brand, the German alchemist who discovered phosphorus by boiling hundreds of gallons of his own piss down to the concentrated. He also collected other people's piss. Give me your piss, man. Yep. It's for science. I need your piss. It's
1: for science. And you know what? When the guy with a big ass wizard hat comes to you and says, this is for science, you listen to him. Yes. He could turn you into a newt. Yes. Give him your piss. So yeah, so he boiled up so much piss
0: that eventually it in the, started glowing in the dark. And that's how phosphorus that's was That's how discovered. we found phosphorus. The funny thing was that uh, he recorded his uh, his methodology very meticulously, which again, pre- predecessor to a genuine scientific method. And later uh, scientists looking at it were like, Oh, he's skimming all these salts off the top of it. That's where the actual philosophy is. Yeah, he's fucking up the, old, the thing. It could have been much he, easier. He could have used much less piss. But, like, you see something like that,
1: and it makes you realize these people weren't idiots for taking this stuff seriously. And yes. for, for, uh, for kings for employing alchemists. This motherfucker boiled piss, and now it's glowing in the dark. That's we- real. That's a real thing now. Yes. How are you, sub- you that you couldn't make that happen? Yes. If he tells you what why if he explaining to you why that happened, he's the
0: one who did it. Why wouldn't you believe him? Exactly. But of course this was all mixed into this mélange of fantastical thinking, both true scientific pursuits and other things. Um, you know, and among other th- those other things, you know, ghosts were common yes. occurrences reported with seriousness in the courts of Anhalt and Brandenburg. John D and Edward Kelly brought scrying and communing with angels into the courts of England and then into Central Europe. This is all very heady stuff. The same material that figures like Aleister Crowley would base their 20th century occultism on. And the boundary between these eras' scientific occultism and the apocalyptic Christianity of the Rosencrucians was thin to non-existent. So
1: in the fall of 1618, between the defenestration and Ferdinand's deposition as king of Bohemia, a comet appeared in the skies above Central Germany became the focus of much speculation from the learned and common folk alike. It was clearly a message from God, but of what? The grist for a supernatural understanding of the world, natural signs, astrology, demonic and angelic possession, were subject to the same written analysis as the proto-science of alchemy and the numerological decoding of the mystical Jewish Kabbalah. Any literate European could read the works of occultists, Paracelsian medical scientists, and alchemists, all grasping to understand the same questions, but without a shared heuristic of understanding. Secret truths seemed tantalizingly close. The Rosicrucian manifestos inspired uncounted copycats, secret societies of people who imagined that they could make contact with the brothers by imitating them, or failing that, embodying them instead. In Heidelberg, the references to a German lion, the lion was the heraldic symbol of the palatinate, bringing about a redemption of Christendom could not be ignored. It's unknown if the manifestos were written as propaganda for the grand project of Wittelsbach expansion, or as a prod by sympathizers to encourage the project to fruition, or as a prank by restless, frustrated minds seeking to immunitize the eschaton through force of will. No matter what the motivation was, the result was that many of those who might have otherwise resisted provoking of confrontation with the emperor found themselves carried away by this reassurance of ultimate victory. The same printing press that had brought them the good news of evangelical salvation also brought them the good news of the triumph of the lion over the Habsburg eagle.
0: But beyond mystic motivations, Frederick had a strategic reason to believe himself the singular linchpin of European Protestantism. He was the head of the Protestant Union, and more, he was married to Elizabeth Stuart, the daughter of King James I of England, Six of Scotland. Mm-hmm. I hate—just pick one, dude. I, I don't like saying it both the same way. I, once you, you ascend to James I of England, I, to me, it supersedes the Six Sorry, of Scotland. Colin. Sorry, Scotland. You're owned. Yes. And again, he was the grandson of William of Orange, of the now Protestant Netherlands. And with the backing of these two Protestant forces, the Protestant England, Protestant Netherlands, Frederick imagined himself strong enough to assert Protestant authority against even the Habsburgs.
1: Because no matter what Christian of Anhalt might have thought of Frederick's status as God's chosen prince, he didn't let God do the work of securing his victory. So throughout Frederick's reign, Christian carries out a diplomatic mission organized around securing a web of military alliances that would make the mm-hmm. Palatinate a strategic match to the empire. In 1610, when a succession crisis in the state of Julius Cleves <laughs> uh, brought Catholic and Protestant camps into conflict, Christian secured an arrangement with King Henry IV, hey, him again, Yes. where the French army would invade the empire to support the Protestant claimant and break Habsburg power once and for all. The invasion was forestalled by Henry's assassination by a Catholic fanatic. Yes, that's two straight King Henry's assassinated by two straight Catholic fanatics.
0: They've really got shooters. They got shooters <laughs> out there. Era, they, yeah. got dagger-
1: they got daggered, They got Sicarios. They got Sicarios. They got daggerers out there. With the French monarchy once again held by a minor, Christian went looking for other patrons. In 1612, he arranged a formal treaty with England, which was secured by Frederick's marriage to King... James's daughter Elizabeth the following year. There was also a treaty with the Dutch Republic, as well as good diplomatic relations with the Duke of Savoy, Kingdom of Denmark, and the Republic of Dennis. By the time of the Bohemian Crisis, Christian and Frederick felt confident that in any war with the empire, they could depend on the material support of every major Protestant state, more than enough to secure the throne in Prague, and maybe, eventually, give them a chance to finally make that empire holy again. Make the empire holy
0: again. Make the empire holy again. Get that Roman out of there, first of all. Yeah, Miha. And so, with this cosmic gumbo of divine purpose and continental strategy simmering in Frederick's court, we return to the Bohemians. Over the course of 1618 and 19, the Bohemians courted both James I of England and the Elector of Saxony as potential kings but both were at least disinterested, if not outright offended at the idea of putting themselves up against the Habsburgs. In the summer of 1618, Frederick sent a mercenary force commanded by Ernst von Mansfeld to reinforce the Bohemians, and after a siege, Mansfeld was able to topple the Catholic stronghold of Pilsen in November, leaving the Protestants in total control of Bohemia. All the while, Christian Anhalt worked diplomatic channels, moving Frederick ever closer to the crown, even without directly informing Frederick of his intentions, and even as his alliances faltered, as members of the Protestant Union registered their indignation at the idea of supplying military support to the Bohemians. Nonetheless, on August 26, 1619, the Bohemian Estates, in a vote of 146 to 7, elected Frederick V as their king. Two days later, on August 28th, Ferdinand II was elected Holy Roman Emperor in Frankfurt, Including the vote of the Palatinate. Mm-hmm. At the time of Ferdinand's election as the Holy Roman Emperor, locals noted that a swarm of bees had gathered in front of the Rathaus, which they took as a bad omen. The following day, Frederick was informed he was now the King of Bohemia. Quote, It is a divine calling which I must not disobey. Frederick wrote to his uncle, the Duke of Bouillon My only end is to serve God and his church. He accepted the crown. Now, in June, the Bohemian revolt
1: leader Count Thurn had led an army of 10,000 into Austria, gambling that bold action would catch the Habsburgs unawares and allow him to take Vienna. This would rally support in Moravia, which was to the east of Bohemia and which was currently in revolt. Now, the army laid siege to the city, and for a moment, the entire war looked like it hung in the balance. Uh, Vienna at the moment was largely empty of troops. Ferdinand was in the middle of negotiations with a group of Protestant nobles in the city when Thurn's army showed up. Uh, That got the nobles all hot and bothered, and they attempted to seize the president's person. Uh, Ferdinand had to flee To a hide in a chapel And was only rescued By the timely arrival Of five
0: companies Of arquebusiers The timely arrival Of five companies Of arquebusiers yes. That's the kind of phrase That I wanted to do This whole series for This is
1: the reason You talk about this stuff folks The Baroque period We love it The five companies Of arquebusiers no, no, At no other time In history Are you going to have Five companies Of arquebusiers Deciding anything Yes uh, But soon reinforcements Made it through The haphazard siege lines The students of Vienna's universities Were mobilized and to service and Catholic backs were stiffened. Thurn in his rush had neglected to bring siege cannons uh, and the expected citizen rebellion that would have delivered a Vienna to him never materialized. So uh, on June 12th Thurn's exposed army lifted their siege and marched north. Now the effect in Vienna was to convince the Catholics of the city that the Protestant nobles were traitors in league with the foreign army. Protestant leaders had to flee the city and raise troops on their own lands. Now in October, uh, Frederick and his pregnant wife, Elizabeth, began the journey from Heidelberg to Prague in a 153 wagon train. He met a thousand-man army commanded by Christian Anhalt along the way and entered Prague at the end of the month. He was greeted by cheering crowds, 400 leading citizens clad in the dress of their Hussite revolutionary forebearers. Coins minted to commemorate the occasion declared Frederick King by the Grace of God and the Estates. Uh, reminding him who his boss <laughs> Yes. In December, Elizabeth gave birth to a son named Ruprecht after the only Palatinate Wittelsbach to ever be crowned King of the Romans. But the Palatinate Calvinists didn't wait long to start alienating the locals. Frederick's court theologian, Abraham that viewed name. Ultraquism as not much better than Catholicism and began a campaign of iconoclasm in the city that provoked outrage among Prague's uh, citizens. The people were able to prevent Skoltennis' fervent students from removing religious statues from the Charles Bridge, but on Christmas, Calvinists broke into St. Vitus' Cathedral to smash windows, slash paintings, and dig up saints' tombs. These were symbols of bohemian pride, and this Calvinist enthusiasm ended up undermining
0: Frederick's cause among the locals. And I think that is an eternal lesson that if you are ever, uh, you know, given command of any organization really from a student council to uh, the king the kingdom of bohemia it's generally a bad move to immediately go in and just start wrecking up the place yeah, like
1: if that stuff's there there's a
0: probably a reason like people can't care about it if you i mean we've both seen the charles bridge it's
1: beautiful it's Leave gorgeous those statues like, alone these things mean things to people more than your stupid books yes international support proved much thinner than christian and frederick had anticipated James I of England found himself, quote, most afflicted by his son-in-law's decision to take the Bohemian crown. He may have signed a treaty with the Palatinate and married his daughter to Frederick, but that wasn't because he sought a role of Protestant kingmaker. He was in the process of arranging a marriage to a Spanish princess for his son and heir Charles. James's goal was to pursue power and influence for England as a peacemaking intermediary between the two confessional blocks, the thing that the Holy Roman Emperor could no longer accomplish. Right. James sent a diplomatic mission to broker an agreement that the situation had now rendered impossible. He also allowed for the raising of volunteer units in England and Scotland, and thousands of British troops ended up serving the Palatine cause, but there was to be no formal English intervention.
0: That went for the Dutch as well, who were gearing up for their own resumption of hostilities with Spain. It's just a reminder that the 12 Years Truce was about to run out, and it's, just, it's very funny to me to call an extended timeout in your Revolutionary War of Independence. Like, we... We all need to take a breather and grab some orange slices. Some William of Orange slices. Some House of Orange slices. (laughs) House of Orange slices. That's a terrible joke. Oh,
1: it's good, though. I love it. Uh, Even the member states of the Protestant League hesitated to declare open war with the Emperor. The greatest material support Frederick was able to count on was the money the crafty Duke of Savoy in northern Italy had put up to get Mansfeld's army in the field. The carefully woven tapestry of alliances and assurances the Anhalt Chancellery had created couldn't withstand the weight of real convulsive conflict. Full of Rosicrucian and Calvinist prophecy, Christian and Frederick had assumed the most expansive possible interpretation of their alliances, interpretations not shared by the other parties. That left the Bohemian cause to rely on Mansfeld's mercenary army, as well as the troops that could be raised by local commanders. The only sizable foreign allied force was the cavalry formation of the Transylvanian wild man Bethlen Gabor. Bethlen Gabor, oh baby, he let's is... just let's let's try to dispense with Bethlen right now, because otherwise it's very hard to integrate him into. He, this yeah, story. he
0: comes back and forth a little bit, but yeah, so. Hungary at this time is another one of these elected monarchies. Yes. Well, it's a rump monarchy because yeah. uh, at the Battle of Mohach, the entire cream of the
1: Hungarian nobility, including the king, were massacred by the Ottomans. Large portions yes. of it were under Ottoman control. Ha- at, at that, uh, the crown went to the Habsburgs because uh, the, the wife of the dead uh, king was a Habsburg. Right. But uh, it was a contested crown, to be sure. And Transylvania is this sort of liminal s- spear which is constantly trying to negotiate power by pitting Habsburg and Ottoman against each other. This is a tradition that was essentially pioneered by good old Dracula. Yes, exactly. Uh, but also guys like uh, Matthias Corvinus and yes. John Hunyadi. Uh, it's an entire warlord subculture.
0: Right, and you end up having this devolved crown that has, like Bohemia, is, is elected, but the Counts, the Dukes, the Draculas, basically. <laughs> <laughs> the Draculas, the warlords. The warlords have much higher power, and I I think it's in uh, Hungary where the, I read this detail where slightly earlier in the medieval era, they would have like councils of 2000 dukes that all met in a field to elect their King. And right outside the field that they would set up a chopping block and an executioner's ax to kind of remind whoever they were going to elect King. Like, well, one option is listen to us. And then the other options right over there across the European continent. As you go East, you see
1: a greater and greater power to the magnates and local rulers less and less concentrated uh, right. uh, royal power also lower lower level of economic development lower right. resources places that were still stuck in an agricultural economy based almost entirely on peasant surpluses and the sale of peasant surpluses as opposed to the more advanced trade networks of, of western europe uh, and that meant weaker monarchies stronger uh, uh, stronger principalities and in the marginal regions where authority broke down the emergence of these essential bandit kingdoms, these warlords, mm-hmm. uh, and the kingdom of, of Hungary uh, and trans, uh, uh, becomes basically a, a plaything of these figures. And during this period, Bethlen Gabor is a by now Calvinist mm-hmm. uh, because uh, in the place – we actually haven't talked about it yet, and we'll talk about it more in future episodes, but the Reformation hits Eastern Europe pretty hard because there's so much less of a, a powerful – Uh, uh, authority a a royal authority to assert religious orthodoxy right so there's more experimentation and so you see a big blooming of the reformation in poland and in eastern europe Mm -hmm. and part of that means that in transylvania in hungary you see uh, calvinist nobles and bethlen gabor is one Uh, and he spends the entire war allying at separate times with the different protestant uh, unions uh, and in failed coordination with them organizing cavalry invasions of the underbelly the soft underbelly he, of the habsburg land he
0: is he's kind of a leroy jenkins figure. yes exactly he's not, he, you can Leroy can't Jenkins, can do anything but he'll just into show up moravia with,
1: yeah. into northern hungary uh, into the place that's already sort of a weak point because it's yes. near the protestant uh, or it's near the uh, ottoman uh, hinterlands but he is never able to coordinate a, an extended campaign his troops always end up uh, just going home <laughs> Uh, So he ends up showing up up late, leaving early. Exactly. So he always ends up getting to a position where he can negotiate a better deal with the empire, Mm -hmm. a a recognition of his claim to the throne and a subsidy or something. And he gets it over and over again. uh, And, and uh, as a result is never able to be a decisive element in the war at all. Uh, He does help distract the empire, at several crucial points, but he is never able to uh, be coordinated in his actions with anybody else. So you have this cycle of invasions by these Transylvanian (laughs) horse lords, these Dothraki, into uh, Mittel Europa there, uh, but they always end up uh, sort of dispersing into another deal
0: with the Empire. So that's Bethlen Gabor. Yeah. He's Dracula. Folks, he's Dracula. Even in Bohemia itself, while the citizens of Prague had funds for lavish celebration upon his arrival complete with fountains of wine, Frederick still learned there was little money to raise an army or fund a militia. Christian Anhalt soon called a conference in Nuremberg, hoping to rally German princes to their side in support of freedoms against imperial oppression. But only those members of the Protestant League showed up to give flaccid support. Frederick's position became weaker and weaker Every moment. It's almost like a lot of these people became
1: Protestants so they could make money. Yes. It's like, hey, what do you think we're doing here? Yes.
0: We didn't come to give it all away. Yeah. You can figure it out. Or maybe you should have figured it out before. Exactly. Meanwhile, despite his early close call in Vienna, Ferdinand's support rallied. In a similar conference, Ferdinand's cause was joined not just by Maximilian and his Catholic League, but by the Protestant John George of Saxony. That's right. Beer George... Had hoped to extend his influence over Bohemia, not by taking the crown, but through offering his protection as a means to negotiate with Ferdinand. Again, we see this, these things where it's like, yeah, you can make a grab for it, but the real power position, the smart, the 200 IQ move, is leveraging some kind of possibility of power for slightly better concessions.
1: Exactly. It's holding the whip hand. Yes. It's not, you don't want to fucking, you're always bluffing. Yes. Because if you're not, then you've destroyed the realm. Congratulations, asshole. Yes.
0: Now, though, with Frederick's impulsiveness, Ferdinand found himself leading a united Catholic and Lutheran effort to stomp out this rebellion and bring Bohemia fully into the empire. Even his cousin, Philip III of Spain, offered to send a fleet to Bohemia, maybe failing to realize Bohemia was landlocked, uh, like Shakespeare references the coast of Bohemia in Winter's Tale. Maybe they were reading the same map. In other Habsburg holdings, however, there were more dedicated opponents. In the Spanish Netherlands, the Genoan general Ambrogio Spinola monitored the situation with much interest. Spinola was psychotically fixated on bringing the Dutch to heel, working 18 hours a day, rarely sleeping, barely eating, and funneling his personal fortune into the Spanish army gearing up for the end of the 12 years' truce. And now, he saw a window opening in the unguarded palatinate. Soon to be an open war with the Habsburgs, and a key geographic point on the so-called Spanish Road, the essential road we mentioned earlier that funneled troops, goods, and money up from Spanish Genoa through the Rhineland and into the Spanish Netherlands. And so he began amassing troops for action, and permission to march was dispensed from Madrid on June twenty-third, 1620. One month later, on July twenty-third, Maximilian of Bavaria's Catholic army crossed into Bohemia, Ferdinand's had secured Maximilian's cooperation by secretly pledging to transfer Frederick's electoral title to him if his army was victorious. So now Maximilian had some real skin in this game. Led by Johann Cercles, the Count of Tilly, the Catholic League army was a mercenary army numbering 25,000 men. Complete with artillery, the 12 largest cannons were each named after one of the Apostles.
1: Now, Tilly had been born to a devout Catholic Dutch family educated by Jesuits and had joined the Spanish army to fight the Protestant Dutch rebels at the age of 15. He later fought the Ottomans in Hungary and the Imperial Army, eventually becoming a field marshal before being appointed chief of the Catholic League forces in 1610. He is a brilliant military commander and a stern disciplinarian known for imposing strict camp morality on his troops, a personally austere monk in armor who now led his force relentlessly towards Prague. Now, while the imperial forces were gathering strength, the Palatine cause was disintegrating. Haphazardly collected taxes and foreign subsidies were not enough to keep Frederick's armies in the field paid and fed. The first of many mutinies broke out as soldiers refused to remain under arms without compensation. To keep his troops fed, Count Mansfeld raided the city of Pilsen for cash and began forced requisitions of peasant property to keep his troops fed. In Prague, Frederick's court persisted in a state of indulgent unreality. The advance of Catholic League forces and his own army's deterioration didn't prevent the Lion of the Palatinate from conducting himself as a king in full. The king and queen of Bohemia paraded about the town in fine, colorful clothing and threw lavish parties for their courtiers and allies. Elizabeth scandalized city opinion with her revealing dresses. <laughs> Frederick with his nude baths in the Vlatava River.
0: Elizabeth and Frederick, very rude. Very rude and nude. Very rude nude to the Vlatava
1: River. Cover up, Elizabeth. Cover up. You look like a slattern, haven't you? And Prague's churches continued to be stripped of their art and relics by iconoclasts and thieves alike. Having surrendered the military initiative, the Palatines were frozen in place, left to await the judgment of God on the righteousness of their cause.
0: Through the cold autumn of 1620, Maximilian's army moved towards Prague, with Christian Anhalt organizing a defense. On the foggy morning of November 8th, Christian's army had taken position on White Hill, outside the city, as the forces of Tilly rallied below. Troops from Bethlen Gabor, whose army had been raiding the countryside, reinforced them in the early morning. Though Anhalt would later claim the Bohemians were outnumbered two to one, both armies probably numbered around 20,000 men. Below, the forces of Maximilian and Tilly were joined by Charles Bacoy, general from the Spanish Netherlands. They positioned less than a quarter mile away from the Bohemian lines, though behind steep cliffs sheltering them from Bohemian cannon. McCoy was bedridden from a gunshot wound to his thigh, which had shattered the bone and advised caution, but Maximilian insisted the moment was now and urged for an attack. Tilly charged the Bohemian forces on Anholt's right flank, but the Bohemians, led by Anholt's own son, stayed firm. Anholt was convinced the Imperials wouldn't risk a direct attack on his higher ground until a cannon barrage aimed directly at the center line gave cover for a direct charge. The Bohemian center made up of underpaid conscripts led by a handful of German mercenary captains, faltered. They were urged to keep their line at sword point, even as Gabor's disorganized horsemen on the left flank dissolved and fled towards the river. In this moment, McCoy rallied from his bed, called for his horse, and led a reinforcing charge into the center. Christian's son fell. The flanks dissolved. The center broke and fled. Imperialists soon captured King Frederick's banner, and the entirety of the Bohemian artillery. Back in Prague, Frederick's first indication that a battle had even occurred was the sight of his battered troops fleeing back into the city. Soon Christian Anhold arrived. For all his schemes, his continent-spanning vision, his prophetic dreams of messianic triumph, and a new heaven on earth, he had only one last piece of advice. We must flee.
1: Frederick and his court made for the Netherlands, where they ended up living in genteel poverty at the sufferance of the Dutch stadtholders. Habsburg broadsheets depicted the king's flight in gloating detail with, quote, his garterless stockings hanging about his ankles. And just
0: his, ran away with his pants down. Just literally, loaned. Yeah, literally caught him with his
1: pants down. Yeah, they really did nail his ass. Ferdinand's conquest of Bohemia and later occupation of the Palatinate provided an opportunity to extend imperial power in ways that would have been unimaginable before the war. The letter of majesty signed by Rudolf was revoked, prescribing Protestantism in the kingdom. Rebel lands were confiscated, titles of nobility were dispensed to Habsburg loyalists, and the formal structures of governance were replaced by the extension of the Habsburg patronage network. In Prague, the emperor was left with the question of what to do with the defenestrators. A list of 82 prominent rebels was drawn up. Some of them had died or wisely fled before the arrival of imperial forces. Two were extradited from Saxony by Elector John George, still annoyed at the Bohemians for causing such a pointless fuss. (laughs) After a two-month trial, 32 men were sentenced to death for treason, with their tongues and hands to be chopped off before death. For their part, the defenestratees urged leniency and a few rebels had their sentences commuted by ferdinand but on the third anniversary of the defenestration he signed 28 death warrants then on june 21st in advance of the emperor's triumphant march into prague three commoners were hanged along with the corpse of one prisoner who had committed suicide in custody i love that they still hung that guy gotta do it and the rest beheaded in an all-day affair that wore through four axe heads in his infinite mercy Ferdinand ordered that only one of the condemned actually had to have their tongue removed the rector of Prague University who had given a public speech in praise of Frederick twelve heads two hands and the tongue were placed above the city gates it was the first of many overreaches by Ferdinand the citizens of Prague who had until that point largely blamed the defenestrators for unleashing the violence
0: turned against the emperor Frederick's defeat in Bohemia was swift and total he would forever be remembered as the Winter King for his short, sad rule. It would seem that this whole mess could have been a footnote in Reformation history, the Winter's War or the Bohemian Revolt. But it is not that. It is the Thirty Years' War, because we are left with some critically loose threads. First, there was the Paladin Mansfield. In winter 1620, Mansfield still commanded a huge mercenary force, And more than just a military commander, he was effectively a head of a mobile state. His officers had servants, various children kidnapped for ransom, gunners and their wives and attendants and men to carry all the booty, merchants, medics, and so on. And everyone had women. In standing mercenary armies of this size at this time, there were six or seven children born every week. Mansfield found himself landless, patronless, and with a price of $300,000 on his head. His only source of power was keeping his army in the field and dangerous. Once Frederick was posted up with the Dutch, Mansfeld began courting them and his old boss to retain his services. Though, perhaps, if he could only make himself seem dangerous enough, his old enemies would simply come along with a higher bid. Yeah, seriously, open to all offers. Yes. Also, there was Maximilian of Bavaria, now occupying Habsburg lands in Upper Austria as a kind of security deposit an assurance that Ferdinand II would honor his war debt. The thing was, Ferdinand was never very liquid as a leader, and with Bohemia, one of the Austrian Habsburg's biggest sources of revenue now in ruins, he was all but broke. Furthermore, Ferdinand's promise of Frederick's electoral crown to Maximilian would require consent of the other electoral princes. And while the Protestant princes had flinched at the call to support Frederick militarily, Stripping him of his crown and putting him under order of imperial ban was again an affront to their independence and privileges, another caustic sign of imperial overreach. And on January 29th, 1621, Ferdinand did put Frederick under that imperial ban. Finally, there was the matter of Spanish troops under Spinola continuing to occupy the Palatinate and the Rhineland. If the war was over, why did this foreign force remain? The collapse of the Protestant cause in Bohemia shifted eyes across Europe back onto the Habsburgs, both Spanish and Austrian. Would their power be uncontested now that the temporary justification for incursion against the Bohemians had ended? At The Hague, less than a week after the 12 years' truce between the Dutch and Spanish ended, Frederick and his wife were welcomed as if they were still the reigning monarchs of Bohemia. Mansfield was courted for a renewed contract, and a new front in the conflict began to emerge. Ferdinand's complete
1: triumph seemed to offer the opportunity to break the unsatisfying post-Augsburg religious deadlock and re-Catholicize a large chunk of the empire, as well as to chip away at the legal prerogatives that the princes had accumulated over the centuries. But every action has its reaction, and the consolidation of Habsburg power sounded alarm bells throughout all the courts of Europe. The threat of another Charles V playing for continental domination could not be allowed to go unchallenged. And the one European state that would provide the most monetary and diplomatic support to the anti-imperial alliance would not be any of the Protestant powers, but rather that eternal secular nemesis of the Habsburgs, Catholic France.
0: While Frederick was received in the United Provinces as a king, Christian Anholt slinked away to far-off Sweden. After a few years spent there and in Denmark, he was eventually pardoned by Ferdinand and allowed back to his estates in Germany, where he died a few years later. The war he had pushed to start still in its first half, it would continue another 18 years past his death. Christian escaped a martyr's death, but when you imagine his motivations, his beliefs, to bring about a new Christian paradise on earth, to perhaps see the last great conflagration between good and evil resolved in his lifetime, the intractable destruction with no end in sight he now died in obscurity during, must have been a bitter end. The storm had come, but not in the way he imagined. The Rosicrucians were never revealed. The Patriots were not, in fact, in control. Philip Fabricius, however, he made it out okay. His loyalty to the Catholics in Bohemia was rewarded with several new administrative positions. And before his death in 1632, he was ennobled by Ferdinand and granted several estates of his own under the newly created title Baron Hohenfall. The Baron of the high fall. Hell on Earth is written by Matt Chrisman and Chris Wade. It's produced by me, Chris Wade, with editing from our co-producer, Nick Quaz. Show art and animation is from the great Ben Clarkson, and you can find a supplemental interactive atlas for the series by John White over at hellonearth.chappotraphouse.com. Our theme music is by Nick Diamonds, with additional music by Alessandro Takeshi, Austin Riley, Blackout Princess, Frederick Scarfone, and John Ahrens. Join us next week as the war breaks out beyond the borders of Bohemia and demands an international intervention.